We are starting a brand new series today. It's called, What Would Jesus Say About the Dodgers? I'm just kidding, I know, too soon. You know, Dan Lee already started picking on me. He's a Giants fan. If you're a Padres fan, or if you're like wearing brown and yellow today, just give me a little space. Uh, we're still morning. Anyway, we're, that's not our series. Our series uh, is a new series today, and it is called The Love Command, or The Love Command in the New Testament. And the crux of this series is, is almost painfully simple. Simple, simple, not simple. But it is this idea that we are called to love one another. Uh, and this is a calling, a command that we see really consistently across the breadth of the New Testament. If you look at the New Testament writings and you look at almost every writer, Jesus, Paul, Peter, James, the author of Hebrews, John, all of them, at the heart of their message is this call for the church to love and to love well. And, you know, I'll be honest, I am really excited about this series. I'm excited about the potential. I'm excited about how we can learn and grow together over the next seven weeks. But I, I was kind of hesitant. I did have a little bit of fear or worry about this series as I was preparing it. Because, honestly, I know it's, it's a pretty basic idea. It's not a particularly fresh or exciting topic if you've gone to church for any amount of time. But you know, this week I was, I was here at the office and I was kind of preparing, I was working on the message, and I ran into Auntie Shirley here, uh, Shirley Oda. She's one of our uh, most beloved seniors, and she likes to come to church a couple times a week uh, just to bother me or just, you know, to be around. She likes to use our computers, and so she's here. But I was explaining the series to her, and I was telling her, hey, um, we're going to do this series on the call to love each other. And I, I started this sentence, I said, yeah, I know that it's, and that blank was going to be, I know that it's basic. I know it's obvious. I know this is kind of simple. But before I could finish my sentence, she filled in that blank with her own words. She said, hard. I know it's hard. Yes, Brandon, you're right. This is really difficult. She also said it's extra hard to love me because she doesn't like me. I'm pretty sure she was kidding. I know she was kidding. But this reminded me of kind of a strange truth, that loving others, this love command, is both the easiest and the hardest part of the Christian life. It's probably the simplest distillation of what we're called to do, and we can all love people. We all know how to do this, and we all know how to do this well, but it is also the hardest, because we have to love in situations that are difficult. We have to love people who are difficult. We have to love when we don't feel like loving. And really, if you read through the New Testament, this idea that it is hard to love as the church, that's really what it's, what it's all about. And so I am really excited for this series. It is simple, but I do think there is so much potential for each of us to grow in this area because of how difficult it is. Uh, so this morning, we're going to begin with a, with a really simple question. Why is this love command so important? And we're really going to kind of go back to, to the heart of this command in the ministry of Jesus. And so if you have your Bibles, uh, turn with me to Matthew chapter 22. And this is a familiar passage that takes place later on in Jesus's ministry. And so Jesus has already spent some time, you know, teaching and healing and making a name for himself. 
And so by this point, he's beginning to encounter some opposition, a little bit of resistance, especially from the religious leaders of his day, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and some others. And so as Jesus enters into this conversation with this particular Pharisee, it's not immediately clear to us, but what the rest of the context suggests is that there's some hostility here. There's a little bit of antagonism in this exchange. So chapter 22, verse 34. It says, hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Now, I want to pause there before we continue. I want to unpack this question a little bit. I think most of us are pretty familiar with this passage, and you're kind of anticipating Jesus' response. But in order to understand that response, we have to understand the intent behind this question. What is Jesus responding to here? So the Pharisee asked Jesus a simple question. Which is the greatest commandment in the law? And you know, this seems like an innocent enough question. Uh, one of our family's uh, things that we enjoy doing is talking about our favorite things. And so one of our long drive activities when we're driving somewhere on vacation is, is we do all these top 10 lists. And so someone will come up with a topic and we'll all kind of think about our top 10 and then we share them all together. So anything and everything, top 10 favorite foods, top 10 favorite Marvel characters or characters from Top Gun Maverick or top 10 favorite restaurants, top 10 favorite vacations. Sometimes it's not even a list. It might just be one thing. Hey, mom and dad, what's your favorite shape? What's your favorite tree? What's your favorite animal? In case you're wondering, triangle, birch tree, and jaguar. It's a little something about me. But <laughs> the heart of this conversation, the heart of these top 10 lists is, you know, curiosity and community, right? Like we want to learn more about each other. We want to know each other better, share in this enjoyment of food and movies and life and trees. And this is not at all the heart of the Pharisees' question. This isn't about curiosity and community. It's not even really clear that the Pharisee wants to know Jesus' answer because the text tells us that he's testing him. What the Pharisee really wants to know is what is Jesus about? More specifically, he wants to figure out, does Jesus agree with me on the subject of Torah? When it comes to the law of Moses, where's Jesus at? Now, what's interesting about that question for us is that it really kind of rises out of the era of Ezra and Nehemiah. We've just finished a study on these books, on these years after the exile. And what we saw in that series was that there was this really huge challenge of rebuilding and restoring a faithful people of God, a holy, righteous people. Right? So they went off into exile. They knew this exile was from sin. They came back and they wanted to be holy. They wanted to be faithful, but they kept messing up. They couldn't figure out a way to stay committed to God. And in the years, the centuries after this period, as we lead into the time of Jesus, these problems would only get worse. And so the hot-button issue in Israel by the time of Jesus what people were really trying to figure out was how do we avoid the mistakes of the past? How can we deal 
with sin in a new way, in a way that was different from before, in a way that avoids all these other failures. And how do we do this in a Roman pagan culture as the world has become more and more sinful, more and more opposed to God? How do we live faithfully? And we could never do it before. And there were a lot of different answers to that question. But if you notice as you read through the Gospels, it's the Pharisees who seem to run up against Jesus the most. And I, and I think the Pharisees' response to this question is probably the most interesting. Because the Pharisees began with really good intentions. They really, really, really wanted to do the right thing. They began, this movement began with this positive goal. They wanted to know, how do we apply the law? How do we apply obedience to every aspect of life? Every single part of daily living, how do we figure out a way to avoid these mistakes? Okay, and so they figured this out for family, work, leisure, travel, diet, clothing, and they came up with this thing called the oral law. And the oral law was basically 613 additional commandments on top of the Mosaic law. And the design of this, again, it is good. Here are some guidelines so that you can make sure you obey these really important laws. And so that's why you have things like, hey, here's the day and time when you can pick grain. Here's the exact amount of each thing you should tithe. Because they said, hey, these are some really important parts of life. Let's make sure that we don't mess up here. Let's make sure that we are clear about what we should and shouldn't do. Now, obviously, there became a problem. This didn't stay good, because what happened is that the oral law, what should have been a guide for holy living, it became their main thing. We see this in Jesus' interactions with the Pharisees, that this oral law, it became the thing that defined how they lived. It defined what was good. It defined true righteousness. Everything was centered around this one thing. And so again, one of the reasons why we see Jesus over and over again coming up against the Pharisees was because they were close. They really did want the same things, but they had this main thing wrong. They were focused on the wrong thing. And so when we come to Jesus' response, there's so much that he's addressing. He isn't just telling them what is the most important commandment. He's talking about what is the pathway to, to genuine righteousness. How do you live in a way that produces faithful, obedient living in everything you do? What is the main thing? And so with that in mind, we can, we can read his response now in verse 37. Jesus replies, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and prophets hang on these two commandments. Now this verse is probably the simplest version of Jesus' ethic. What it means to follow him. What it means to live the way he wants us to live. And this is also Jesus' response to this question of what is the main thing? He says, love God, love your neighbor. Now let's explore this response a little bit. I think there are two really important things that Jesus does here. 
First, he elevates love for people. Jesus wants us to see how high of a priority this is. And he does this by starting off with kind of an obvious uh, response. He quotes from Deuteronomy 6. This is called the Shema. And it's one of the most beloved passages in the Torah, in the Old Testament law. It's kind of the, maybe the John 3.16 for little Jewish boys and girls. And so every Israelite would have known this and agreed with this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. And this isn't really all that controversial of an answer. It would be like if you asked me, hey, Pastor Brandon, what is the most important thing to be a good basketball player? You are an expert in basketball, so what is the most essential skill to teach? Now, what if I said, let me help you. The most important thing in playing basketball is scoring more points than the other team. You would say, yes, thank you. That is sort of helpful. And that, right, it reminds you of the overall purpose, why you would do anything in a basketball game. I kind of wish someone would remind Russell Westbrook that this is how basketball works. But right, at the same time, it's not really that helpful. There's, there's a lack of specificity here. It doesn't tell you anything about playing basketball. And so the command to love God is good. Like, I'm not saying it's a bad answer or it's not an important answer, because obviously it is. But the point is that this is something that anyone and everyone would have agreed with. Every rabbi at that day would have said, yes, the Shema, so important. We are loving God with all of our heart, all our soul, all our strength. But then Jesus kept going, and here is where he does something that is new, something that's kind of revolutionary for his time. Because he says this, he says, there's another commandment that's like it. And when he says this, this phrase, it's like it, he's not saying, well, this thing is kind of similar or this kind of has the same idea. He's saying it's like it in, in value. They hold the same weight. And he says, he quotes from Leviticus 19.18. He says, love your neighbor as yourself. So here really is, I think, where the brilliance of Jesus comes in. Because he takes another passage that this Pharisee would have known very well. If you had asked this Pharisee, hey, should you love your neighbor? He would have said, of course. We're all trying to love our neighbors. But Jesus says, take that and put it with this. They're the same. They have the same value. They have the same meaning in this main thing of life. He's saying you cannot do one without the other. And so really in the context, the force of the statement is, hey, look, you all know you're supposed to love God. That's what we're trying to do. That's what the law is for. But here is what you're missing. Love for God finds expression, it becomes tangibly real in your love for neighbor. Put another way, love for God in real life is loving people. Tangible, meaningful love. This isn't just something you give lip service to, but he says to love someone with the care, the intention that you have for yourself, that you have for your own well-being, for your own needs. And so what he's telling the Pharisee is this. He says, hey, you have your, your main thing. Your, your whole paradigm for what's important is wrong. And it's good. You know, you're, you're searching for a way to be righteous in everything you do. 
You, you have all these good things. You want to do what's right. You want to be careful about sin. But you think it's more rules. You think it's restricting life more and more. You think it's this complex system of religion. You think it's about making yourself more holy, making yourself better. It's about making yourself more acceptable. You're wrong. To love God is to live to make others better, to live for other people's needs first. Jesus is elevating love for people in a way that no one ever had before. Now, I imagine as, as Jesus is talking, the, the Pharisee is probably feeling a little defensive. You know that feeling where like somebody is kind of putting you in your place and you feel that like little hot ball of anger rising up in you. And I, I imagine he's coming up with all these arguments in his head like, well, Jesus, if love is so important, then why did God give us all these laws? If love is the only thing, then why do we have all this? Why give us the law of Moses? Can't just be love, obviously. And here we see a little more of Jesus' brilliance because in verse 40, he, he anticipates this objection. He wants to meet this Pharisee where he's at. And he addresses his main thing. Verse 40, all the law and prophets hang on these two commands. So, so notice what Jesus is not saying. He's not throwing out the law and the prophets. He's not saying that obedience and, and living according to certain guidelines, that that doesn't matter. He's not saying that you shouldn't observe Sabbath or tithe or, or, or deal with sin or, or focus on proper worship. He's not saying any of those things. He's not saying all you need is love. If you love, everything will work itself out. What he's saying is this second key truth, that love is what activates real righteousness. He's saying that all other commands, everything else you do, all these other priorities for living, which may or may not be good, but many of them are, you cannot do them, you cannot fulfill them, you cannot give them any meaning or value unless you love your neighbor first. So they are all, all these other things, they're hanging on love for God, expressed in love for people. They're dependent on it for their meaning and value. Uh, a few months ago, uh, we, right in the middle of summer, we started to notice that our house was feeling a little bit warm. Now, it was that week, it was that really hot week where it got up to like 105, everyone was hot, everything was warm. So at first we thought maybe it was just, uh, it was just the heat, but you know, by the middle of the day, the temperature is rising, we could tell something was wrong uh, with our AC. Because you know, the air conditioner was running, we could hear it going, but the house wasn't cooling down. And you put your hand up to the vent, and you could feel it going, but it's, you know, it's just that hot, stale fan air. So we call a guy, and, and he comes out, and it turns out that our compressor needed replacing. We needed a new compressor. Now, I'm not an air conditioning expert. This is how I understand it. If I'm wrong, don't correct me, just you know, go with the illustration. But basically, the compressor is the part of the AC unit that takes the warm air and turns it into cold air, for lack of a more detailed explanation. And so when the compressor isn't working, everything else can seem fine. Right? The thermostat's working, the vents are blowing, and you know, that big old condenser unit thing outside is still making noise, like you can hear everything looks fine, everything sounds fine, but Without that compressor, 
it's just blowing a bunch of hot air. It's not doing what it's supposed to do. And in a lot of ways, love is like that compressor, right? Without it, you can have all this activity. You can do religious stuff. You can obey certain guidelines and rules. You can live all these righteous behaviors. But what Jesus is saying is without love, it's, it's just a bunch of hot air. I don't want to skip ahead too much. We're going to talk about Paul uh, in the coming weeks. But he basically says this exact thing in 1 Corinthians 13. Verse 1, he says, If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, guess what I am? I'm a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and I have faith that can move the mountains, but do not have love, I'm nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Resounding gongs, clanging cymbals, just a bunch of hot air. This is life. This is obedience. This is church activity. This is law keeping. This is any good thing without love, without tangible love for your neighbor. The flip side, though, is this. And this is what Jesus wants the Pharisee to hear. Jesus isn't here to win an argument. Jesus isn't here to put the Pharisee in his place. Jesus wants to show this Pharisee a better way. And so what he's saying to him is, hey, listen, when you do have love, when you bring love into what you're doing, everything changes. When your obedience and your life is motivated by, activated by love for neighbor, then the air starts to blow cold, those clashing cymbals and, and resounding gongs, it turns into beautiful music. Everything begins to accomplish its purpose. And so he's offering the Pharisee an opportunity. He says, everything that you're looking for, everything that you want for your life and for your people is right here. Here's purpose, here's meaning, here's value, here's holiness, here's righteousness. Love your neighbor. That's how you love God. And this really is the, the foundation of this series. That for us as God's people, people who have been redeemed, who have been brought out of exile, this is how we live faithfully. This is how we grow spiritually. This is how we follow Jesus. It's not primarily a set of behaviors. It's not primarily a change in what we do. It's first and foremost a commitment to place love at the foundation of everything we do and everything we are. Because I think, here's what we know. I think we all know this. We all have experienced this. It's, it's easy to say we're loving or to say we love someone. It's easy to kind of like the Pharisees say, yes, I agree with Leviticus 19, 18. Yes, of course, love is good. It's easy to say, I love my spouse, I love my kids, I love my church, I love my friends, I love the people in my community. But man, it's an entirely different thing to have love be elevated to this level where it is the main thing in everything we do. 
to say that I'm going to love people, I'm going to put their needs first, I'm going to be for them, I'm going to make my, my life less about myself, less about my priorities, I'm going to make it less about my main thing and help them with their main thing, with what they need. And I'm going to do that first. I'm going to do that foremost. I'm going to make that what gives meaning to everything I do. It's easy to talk about love. Man, it's hard to do. Uh, this past week, uh, you know, obviously I was preparing this message. So I was thinking about uh, being more loving. And I kind of wanted to just, just go through my week and, and process each thing, process all these different contexts. And I knew, obviously, I was, wasn't going to be loving in, in every single situation. But I just kind of wanted to take stock. Pay attention to my motives. Pay attention to, to how I was feeling. Pay attention to what was behind the scenes of all these different things that I do, all these different places that I go. And it was humbling. It was really humbling because it was crazy how many times I found that you know love was like way, way back here. Even in areas of my life where it's like, I love this person. Uh, one example is, is I found this to be true with, with my kids. And you know, it goes without saying, I love Kaya and Grayson. Like you guys, know, like I, I love them. You know how you love your kids. And I want what's best for them. I want them to be happy. I love spending time with them. But one of the things that I realized this week is that while the idea of love, of course it's true that I love them, but in my actions, I was often motivated by so many other things. That love was like number 11 on the list of things that was motivating me in any given moment. So for example, one thing that's you know, obviously really important to me, as it is to most people, is you know, I want my kids to grow up to be kind, respectful, responsible people, right? Like high character. I want them to be good listeners and treat people well. And so what I find myself doing a lot of the time is responding through a lens of teaching and correcting, right? Helping them grow to be better people. You know, you can't stay like a seven-year-old and a nine-year-old forever. Now, there's nothing wrong with this. This is good. This is the heart of parenting is instruction and correction. And we want our kids to be good people because we love them, of course. But I realize that there are so many times when who I want them to be, right, this improvement paradigm, it would just, that would be what would drive my responses towards them. It would drive just kind of my emotional state towards them and, and how I interpreted and, and responded to things that they were doing. It impacted how I talked to them, just my general mood towards them. And that was you know, so often at the heart of my, my mood and what I was doing, more so than just loving them as I love myself, meeting their needs, being for them first and foremost. And what I realize is that so often I feel this tension, right, this disconnect between what I'm doing and saying and the, the dad that I want to be, the kind of dad that I want to be to them, the way I want to talk to them, the way I want to be around them. And I think that's the disconnect we feel in any context when our main thing is, is not love because we're disconnected from who we were made to be and what our purpose is. And so what I noticed this week is as I was processing through this is that I, if, when I was conscious, when I began to say, this is not good. And so the latter half of the week, I was really, really trying to be intentional. Like, love is the first thing. 
Like, sure, I can correct them. I can teach them. I'm not going to let them do all these ridiculous things or be disappointed. But I'm going to love first. And that's going to control the response. That's going to control my tone. That's going to control the discipline. That's going to control the, the, the time I spend with them. That that's going to control whether I go into Kaya's room and sit and watch the sound of music with her or not, or just go and sit and play on my phone. That's going to decide every moment. And guess what? I failed again in a lot of moments, but it, it did make a difference. And I could feel those moments when, when love was first. It literally is like the difference between AC with a compressor and AC with no compressor. You feel the cool air. All of life feels different. Everything I do feels different. That's what I mean when I say love activates real righteousness. Love activates a different way of living, new behaviors, new thoughts, new emotions, new responses. And what Jesus is saying is that this can't just be true in the obvious situations. It has to be true in every facet of life. Families, relationships, at work, when we go to church, when we're in our small group, when we're with non-believers, when we're at the grocery store, when we're doing anything. Love activates real righteousness. And so the challenge as we consider this passage this week, as we, we begin to enter into this series and, and think about this love command, is to ask the question, where does my life need love? Where do I need love for others to be my main thing, to activate all of my behaviors and thoughts? And maybe this week, try that challenge. Just every day wake up and say, all right, I'm going to take stock. It's not about being perfect. It's not about applying love perfectly all week. You're not going to do that. But at least ask that question. Wherever I go today, where is love on my list of priorities? And I think what you're going to find is obviously that sometimes there's an opportunity that looks really inviting. Your kids, your spouse, your friends. There are also going to be places where loving people is really hard. People are difficult, where you're stressed and busy. There are going to be times when you are actually going to say to yourself, I don't want to be loving here. This is too hard. This takes too much of me. And the point when you feel that is not to feel guilty. Right? It's, it's not about meeting some standard of love. We're not creating some new way of earning righteousness. It's not about being perfect. But what happens is that when we do this, when we live for this love command, even when we fail, what's going to happen is that it, it draws us more and more to Jesus. It gives us a reason to need God. It gives us a reason to depend on the Holy Spirit. It gives us a reason to be in prayer constantly. See, there's this beautiful loop where as we love people out of our love for God, it draws us into more love for God. And when we step into that, we begin the process of a life that is holistically changed, where love for God and love for people really are alike, of equal value. Now, one last thing before we close. Uh, I want you to notice this from the passage. I think there's something interesting about the way it ends. In the Gospel of Mark, there's basically the same story. 
same conversation, same people, same Pharisee. And at the end of it, the Pharisee looks at Jesus and he's like, wow, Jesus, that's a great answer. I agree. They basically hug it out. There's a happy ending. But in our account, in Matthew, there's nothing like this. In Matthew's account, it just ends. No resolution, no response. We have no idea how this Pharisee responds to Jesus' teaching. As my kids like to say, it's a bit of a hanger cliff. (laughs) It's a cliffhanger. But (laughs) I think there's some intention here. I think there's a reason why Matthew does this. And we see kind of the voice of these biblical authors in, in how they tell these stories. Because Matthew is writing to a predominantly Jewish Christian audience. People who would have come from a background like this Pharisee. Who would have understood and identified with him. Identified with a life committed to some other main thing. Identified with the challenges of putting love first. And so Matthew leaves them with this note of uncertainty. He doesn't tell them how this Pharisee responds because the point of this story is for them to respond. He wants them to walk away asking, how will I respond to this? As I am like the Pharisee, what will I do next? And this is the question that hangs in the air for us. As we consider what it means to be the church, what it means to rebuild and restore what God is doing, because in many ways we are like the Pharisee too. Maybe not in those exact ways, but we have, we all have main things that we've been living for. We all have reasons to be resistant to this command of love. We all have reasons why we might say, well, that's not practical, Jesus. I could never do that, Jesus. That's not for me, Jesus. And he leaves it hanging there because he wants us to ask ourselves, he wants us to stick with that question, what will I do now? How will I respond? Jesus says this is the key to righteous living. And so this week, as we prepare to go deeper in this series, we're going to reflect on all kinds of what what it means to love, how to love, situations where love is difficult. This week, again, just let's look at our lives and consider where is love for my neighbor needed? Am I open to the change God might want to bring to my life? Uh, Let's pray together.